Get the champagne ready. The NBA Finals are here. Welcome to the NBA Finals. Let's raise our glasses and our rings to the two phenomenal teams left standing. My goodness. Here's the high stakes action to thrilling moments we can't miss. He ties the game at the buzzer. And to crowning our next champion. Here's a toast to the NBA Finals. The 2024 NBA Finals presented by YouTube TV continue on ABC. Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. Hey folks, this is Kevin. On this week's episode of Risk, you'll hear Mike Carlip. Eventually, my girlfriend came back and uh, we moved out. We got engaged. We got married. And, meh, hold on. And, um, and, uh, <laughs> that and more. But before that, I just want to say I have just finished creating this course that is the most complete storytelling course I've ever created before. Now, it was created in conjunction with the folks over at onemonth.com. The course is called Storytelling for Business. And if you go to onemonth.com slash risk, you can find out about being a part of it. You can enter to win free enrollment. Anyone who enters will also get 20% off with a coupon code. There's no purchase necessary to enter, but if you win the giveaway and you're already enrolled, you'll be refunded. We're taking entries until the end of the day on Wednesday, May 25th, and randomly picking a winner the next day. For an entire month, you will be able to download videos of me teaching a workshop to six different students. You will be uploading your own videos of your stories and be getting feedback from me, from the folks at one month, and from your fellow students. You will see me giving lectures on the three essential elements of a story, on the two modes in which story text operates, on including the six senses in your scenic detail, and on shaping a story with the five beats of classic story structure. You'll see me and several other pro storytellers sharing stories that I will then dissect for you. If you or anyone you know wants to improve your communication skills in your career, whether your career is, well, let's see, one of the students that you'll see in the live class that I taught was a painter, one was a banker, uh, one worked in filmmaking. I mean, it really doesn't matter where you're coming from. If you just want to learn how to tell stories that might be useful in any way in getting your point across in the work that you do, holy cow, 
this is one of the best courses I've ever taught. It is so thorough, so hands-on. You will be very engaged. I've never seen online education as dynamic as they make it at onemonth.com. So go to onemonth.com slash risk to enter to win, to get the whole class for free. And even if you don't win, you will automatically get a 20% off coupon code. No purchase is necessary to enter, but you'll get that coupon code if you do decide to enter and don't even win getting it for free. So onemonth.com slash risk. End of the day, May 25th is when they're cutting off the giveaway there. Also, I want to remind you to go to adamandeve.com. And for a limited time, you'll get 50% off just about any item. Just select one item at 50% off. You'll get three free adult DVDs plus a free exclusive gift. And they'll throw in free shipping. The exclusive gift is a clit bumper. Uh, it's a cock ring, and it, uh, you know, in case you play with ladies, it can also stimulate the clitoris. So, very exciting. Now, there's so much to get at Adam and Eve. Their own brand, ultra thin condoms are amazing. Pure silicone lube, amazing. They have the Rude Boy, one of the best prostate massagers out there. The Rabbit for the ladies, lingerie. I mean, the list goes on. It's an amazing resource, and this is an amazing deal. Risk fans have literally raved about this deal. You go to adamandeve.com, use the code RISK at the checkout, and that's all you need to know. 50% off any item, plus all that free stuff. Now here's the show. Kids, this is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison, and this is DJ George and Joski <laughs> behind me now. Listen, I am not going to lie. I am obliterated with exhaustion right now. I'm just coming back from our show in Boston. I'll tell you... We've been doing this for seven years. I have never done a job before in my... I've never done anything before in my life that is as exhausting as putting this show out there. It is just unreal sometimes how much work it takes to work with people on all these stories, put together all these live shows, travel all around the states. Uh, just, um, it is truly a life of no weekends or breaks uh, is what it feels like a lot of the time. And 
What makes that especially disturbing is that we're frighteningly low on money. You know, seven years in, we are really hurting for money. What makes it frustrating is this. The fans of the show come up and say, holy shit, this show is so goddamn special. It's unlike any other show. It's just a crucial contribution that it makes to the culture because people are so damn honest and thoroughly open in a way that they just aren't on other storytelling shows or just other podcasts in general. And we love hearing that. We love hearing every week people saying, this show actually saved my life. But... <laughs> the mass media, you know, your New York Times or Entertainment Weeklies or Rolling Stones have just, we've stayed under the radar for seven years. Like, the fans know that, but those folks don't. And while these shows on NPR, uh, you know, have these massive NPR budgets and staffs, they also have people like the MacArthur's saying, hey, here's half a million dollars every few years <laughs> and it's just like will there ever be a MacArthur who feels like so many of our fans feel about this show I just don't know sometimes uh, what I'm saying is if you can please get to the support us page at risk-show.com because I mean, we're searching for new advertisers. We've got this whole new plan for searching for advertisers. We're thinking of starting a whole new plan for fundraising as well. But uh, listen, if you love what you do and you know a uh, anyone who is a philanthropist type who has a beating heart and might be interested in hearing what it is that we do... For God's sakes, go to risk-show.com, the support us page there, and help to keep us running because, you know, <laughs> it, it's, it, it gets a little shattering sometimes to feel like, oh my God, I don't know how long I could keep running if I was rich, <laughs> just because this work is so demanding. But to keep on running while being like, oh, but I don't know if I can afford to get the transportation to the plane for, for the umpteenth trip I'm making this month. That's scary. So that's my little Kevin's at wit's end beginning to this episode. <laughs> All right. Let's put that all behind us now and focus on the stories, folks. We're calling this episode The Age of Innocence. These are three stories where, you know, innocence goes the way of the dodo. Uh, some are funny. Uh, one is very much not typical little uh, trip around the emotional realm on today's show. In just a bit, we are going to hear from Markisha Bazile, but before that, one of our favorites, Mr. Ken Reed, who has a new album dropping this very week. I think it's on Friday. It's called Vanity Project Number 1. 
colon, Hollywoodland. It was recorded at the Nerdist Showroom in Los Angeles. I've heard the album. I love it. What you're about to hear is not any of that. Ken's new stand-up album is completely different material. You're about to hear Ken at the last Risk Live show that we did in Boston. Not the one I did just last night, but about a year ago. Here's Ken Reed now with a story we call Old Blue Balls. requested the Dr. Dre. <laughs> uh, you wouldn't know what to look at me now, because obviously I'm just like the pinnacle of health and, and just look great, but uh, I'm 49 years old. I'm not that old. Um, I should have lied in, in a higher age, then it would have been more obvious that I was lying. Uh, 94 years old. So that's, I should have said that. But when I was a teenager, I was sick all the time. And I didn't have, like, I didn't have lupus or anything like that. Like, I was just very unhealthy. I was, I suffered from panic attacks. I uh, had severe depression. I never slept. I literally never, like, I would sleep maybe two hours a night. And that sounds fun when you're, like, nine years old and you're like, I'm going to stay up all night. It's going to be great. Uh, it's not fun. After the fourth week of watching the same four movies on HBO, uh, with the black box you made in a fever dream. <laughs> and your brain starts to go, look, dude, if you're not going to go to sleep, I'm just going to start dreaming right now. And you start having hallucinations. It's pretty not fun. Now, I didn't drink. I've never had alcohol. I've never had a drug in my life. But everyone I went to school with thought I was like this crazy druggy, uh, just drunk, because I was like a punk rock kid, and I also really like to uh, instigate people into fighting me, which is usually not a character trait that people who aren't drunk have. <laughs> and I just, like, I didn't look good. I was, like, very pale and very thin, and I had a lot of health problems. Like, I always... I was in a band and I, did, I can't sing and I still can't, so I would scream in this punk rock band, so I would often just cough up blood. Uh, and that's really not something that normal people not named Doc Holliday do. Like, that's not a thing. Like, generally, any of the symptoms of tuberculosis are not a thing you should be doing in high school. <laughs> I used to hang out at this punk rock club in Boston called The Rat, and it was a filthy basement and, and it was just gross. And you would sometimes walk in there and be ankle deep in liquid and just be like, yeah, okay. Like no one would question it. There was one incident where uh, raw sewerage had leaked into the club and you would think, Ken, how long was that club closed for? None time. That's how long it was closed for. They, their solution was to put down kitty litter and then let everybody in, and kids slam dancing with raw sewage-soaked kitty litter got into all our lungs, and it will all die, just like John Wayne in that movie with the nuclear sand. Um, so it was very sick. I had bronchitis all the time. I was constantly coughing. And one day at a show at the Rat, I was at a punk rock show, I had maybe the worst coughing fit I've ever had in my life to the point where I actually passed out. Like, I was... I was 
had no oxygen and I passed out and kids just thought I was drunk and nobody did anything. So I was passed out probably without oxygen for, I don't know, four hours, maybe not that long, I'm not a doctor. But <laughs> it was a while and, and that was bad. But no one really cared because they, they thought, if anything, it was almost like a badge of honor. They were like, Ken really partied. That's pretty cool. Because of the context. Later, I would have similar situations in high school in my normal suburban town, and it didn't go that well. Like, I, one day I was in an AP psychology class, which was ironically appropriate, and I started having a panic attack because a girl had kissed me that week for the first time in my life. Which, when you're 17, totally normal to have a panic attack because of that. Uh, so I asked to go to the nurse, and I would frequently go to the nurse because I was sick all the time. I, was, I, I would vomit frequently. I just, it was a great weight loss program, uh, but it was not very fun. And I felt like garbage all the time, just like a sack of wet garbage was the best way that I could say that I felt. The first time I got an eight-hour sleep night was when I was 25 years old, and I woke up the next day and I was like, is this how I'm supposed to feel all the time? Because I don't feel like I just want to die, which was how I felt for my entire life up till that point. So I asked to go to the nurse, and apparently I looked so bad that they sent another student after me in case I didn't make it to the nurse's office, which was a good idea because I didn't make it to the nurse's <laughs> office. I remember getting up and leaving class, and the next thing I remember was I was on the floor of the boys' room with this kid Rob slapping me in the face and asking me if I was dead. <laughs> Apparently I had passed out. So as, I wasn't dead, so as I wake up, the school nurse comes in with a wheelchair and is like, Ken, you need to get in this wheelchair uh, so we can wheel you to the nurse's office. And the nurse's office was maybe 20 feet from the boys' room. And I was like, I'm not getting in a wheelchair. She's like, no, you have to get in this. If you fall over again and hit your head, like we're, it's a liability. And I argued with her about getting in this wheelchair. And I argued with her just long enough for me to lose the argument, get in the wheelchair just in time for the bell to ring so that everyone in the high school came out of class to see me being wheeled out of the boys' room by the nurse and all just thought I had some kind of terrible bathroom situation where they were like, Ken had a really rough time in there to the point where the nurse had to come in and get him out of the bathroom in a wheelchair. Like he can't even walk anymore. That's how bad. And kids called me shitstorm. That's what happened. Like Ken shit so much he lost the use of his legs. That's. And you know what? That kind of reputation, not going to be popular, with, uh, especially with the ladies. So, really, really bad. So I was used to these kind of things in school, but I was very aware of how embarrassing these things could be, so a lot of times I would ignore them. Until maybe the worst incident, where I was sitting in art class, and I started to feel this unusual pain I had never felt before, and it was like a growing... Uh, just sort of visceral pain in my testicles. And now I, as I said, had kissed a girl once. I did not have an STD. It was not possible for me to have an STD. But I'm like, I think I have chlamydia. Like I thought, like I didn't know what was going on. It felt like someone had taken an iron rebar and just hit my testicles with it 
maybe 3,800 times. That's what it felt like. And, and that's a painful thing for guys when you get hit in the balls, but it grows and then it goes away. This to the, you know when you get hit in the nuts and it hurts really bad and you feel like you can't take it anymore and then it starts to fade? Yes. Get to that point, yeah. <laughs> right now. Uh, imagine that scenario where it gets to the point where it's gonna, it, it, you can't take it anymore and it fades, but instead of fading, it gets twice as bad and just kept growing and growing and growing. It's, it felt like how teenage boys lie about what blue balls feel like when they're telling teenage girls to touch their penis. That's what, which, uh, by the way, everybody, that's not a thing. Blue balls is not a thing. It's a completely made up thing that teenage boys tell girls. Uh, but this was actually like what they tell you it feels like. So now I'm very nervous and I don't know what to do because this isn't like I'm gonna throw up, I have a headache, like I'm gonna go to the nurse and be like, my testicles hurt more than I think is possible. I need to, I guess I need to leave because I don't think you can do anything about it. <laughs> so I'm just feeling worse and worse. So I go to the nurse and I say, I, I'm really feeling bad. And I had a relationship with the nurse in the high school at this point where I would just be like, I'm sick. And she'd like, see ya. Like they wouldn't even call my parents. They would she wouldn't even ask me for any kind of symptoms. I would just get sent home. And I didn't take advantage of it because I was weirdly a good kid. So she let me go home, which is not what you should do when someone's in this situation. Because it turns out what I had was kidney stones. Yeah, and a lot, which is unusual for a 17-year-old, I should say. Now, a lot of people say kidney stones, they think kidney stones and they go, oh, that's very painful because they imagine uh, like a, like a, a boulder coming out of their ureter, which is not what hurts. It is, peeing it out is not the painful part. What actually hurts with a kidney stone is traveling from your kidney down to your bladder because you have these tubes, and a kidney stone is not like a smooth pebble. It looks like a mace, like a, like a medieval mace, like, and feels like a medieval mace dipped in mace. Like, it's basically <laughs> like a sea urchin that is traveling down this tube and it's so it's scraping the walls and it also is about the same size as the tube so it's not like a smooth journey it gets stuck and then you have spasms and push it through and it's very very painful and it really is one of the three most painful things you can have i'm assuming because i've never had a child and haven't cracked my femur in half lengthwise which is what the doctor told me is the only other thing that's as painful as this so but at this point i don't know that's what i have so the nurse sends me home and goes, okay, you can go home. So now I'm 17, I have kidney stones, and I'm walking the 10 minutes home to my house. Every day when I would walk home, I walked by this supermarket called Johnny's Food Master, and every day, I did not eat right, by the way, every day I would go and I would buy a pie, like a full-sized pie. Um, a, they were $1.99, I would buy a pie and I would eat it on the way home. You know how some teenagers carry like a lighter? I literally used to carry a fork. Like I always had a fork with me. And, and so for a second, I considered, when I was going by Johnny's Food Master, for a second, I considered not buying a pie. And I still went in there. Like that's, like that, my brain was wrong. So I went in there and I like, I like pushed my way through buying this pie and I'm like sweating and I'm like And they thought, I mean, they just thought I was on heroin. I don't know what they thought. So I get this pie home. I didn't eat it on the way home because I, was, I felt like I was literally going to turn myself inside out. Like I felt like if I vomit, I'm going to be inside out from now on. 
So I barely make it to my door, I get in the door, and I collapse. And when I collapse, I fall on the pie, which, it was a coconut cream pie, which hit me, in, like I fell it, in my face. So now I'm in the most pain I've ever been in in my life, and I've also, for the one and only time in my whole life, actually put a pie in my own face. And it's actually, you know what, it's the only time I've ever put a pie in anyone's face. So now I'm just like, I, I don't know what's going on. I have a pie in my face. I really think I'm gonna die. Like, I'm like, that's it. Now apparently I was so sick looking that the nurse had second thoughts about just being like, yeah, go ahead, walk home. And called my mother and was like, Ken looks pretty bad. You might want to check on him. So she arrived while I was basically passed out moaning with a pie in my face. <laughs> Here's the scary part, didn't question it. Just put me in the car, we went to the ER. It was the only time I've ever been to the ER in my entire life. I show up and their first thing was like, how is this pie related to what's going on? And I'm like, the pie, the pie is irrelevant here. Just forget the pie. It really has nothing to do with what the problem is. But they, they kept, they literally kept asking me about the pie. And I'm like, F please forget the pie. My testicles are really sore. I'm like, I don't, and I don't, it has nothing to do with the pie. So I'm waiting in the ER and the pain's getting worse and worse. And this doctor comes in and he was not like a George Clooney uh, ER doc. He was not like a, a I'm a med, just got out of med school. This guy looked like he had been working in this ER for 40 years without ever going home. Like he just was there all the time. And he looked like if you combined uh, Bunsen and Beaker into like one person. And he was very unpleasant. And he says to me, we're not quite sure what's wrong, so I'm gonna have to do a digital rectal exam. And I was 17 year old boys do not want anyone touching their ass like that. That's just a, for the most part. And so I panicked and I was just like, and I was like, you're not putting anything in my ass. And then he took real umbrage to that. And he's like, I won't have that street language in here. And then he said, I've saved a lot of lives putting things in asses. That's what he said to me. So I'm in the most pain I've ever been in in my entire life. I have a pie in my own face and a doctor saying I've saved a lot of lives putting things in asses and I'm like, I, I, can't, even, I can't even appreciate the humor of this situation. That's how much pain I'm in. So he refuses to treat me. They get another doctor who comes in and is like, you probably have a kidney stone. So I have to go down to the ultrasound. So this is the closest I'll ever get to experiencing what it's like to be a pregnant woman. Um, they, they give me an ultrasound and you know, they put this lotion on your kidneys and they rub this thing that looks like um, an epilady on you and they, they realize it's a kidney stone. They give me some incredibly powerful painkillers, hydrocodone, uh, things that people in South Boston rob Walgreens for. Um, <laughs> So I go home with this stuff. They also give me a package of coffee filters and one of those jugs that you use to pee in if you're on a boat. And they say, for the next four days, just pee through these coffee filters into this jug and then, you know, bring that urine into us. <laughs> there was a reason. They weren't just like, we think it would be funny. The, the, 
The reason is so you could get kidney stones from all kinds of different things. So they want to get the stone and then test it and then be like, hey, this stone's from this. Don't do that again. Which I would have appreciated because I really didn't want one of those again. Uh, and again, once it gets into your bladder, like it's gone. Like you, you don't even know it's there. It's like the size of a grain of sand. Also, I want to mention, due to the ultrasound, I found out that I am a, a mutant. And you have tubes from your kidneys to your bladder. You have two tubes. They're called uh, ureters. And they go from this kidney to your bladder and your right kidney to your bladder. On my right side, I actually have two tubes. And then just one. So I have, I have 50% more kidney to bladder railways than most people, which is a really bad X-Men power. And I'm just like, <laughs> I can filter urine through my kidneys 50% more efficiently than you can. <laughs> Get me a costume. But, uh, so that night, it was a Friday, and that night we had a punk rock show that we were supposed to play, and I was very dedicated, and I'm like, no, I'm not gonna let this stop me. And also, I've never done a drug before, so I have zero tolerance, and I just kept popping these things because I was in so much pain, so I was completely insane. And apparently, I played this punk rock show, and everyone still tells me about what happened because I don't remember any of it. They're like, oh man, you were so funny, and you were saying this and that thing, and then you got up on the speaker, and I'm like, I... I have no recollection of this whatsoever. People videotaped it. I've never seen it. I never want to see it. It's probably more embarrassing than showing up in an ER telling them your balls hurt with a pie on your face. Um, so after like, I, I, didn't, I didn't use the coffee filters. I, after none times. I, I was like, I'm not, I, so I stopped. I don't know what caused the kidney stone ever and I, uh, to avoid it. I haven't had one since then, so apparently whatever it was, I'm not doing it anymore, so I think it was probably dial-up AOL. That's uh, probably what it cost it. But the worst part was that uh, they did the ultrasound, and the guy says, it's a kidney stone, and I'm like, that's great. He goes, but that's not my concern here. And I was like, this, there, there's a lot of things you could probably be concerned about. And I was very, I used to read medical dictionaries, so I was convinced that I had all kinds of things like rickets. And um, he goes, when we did the ultrasound, we saw that your, your liver is in an advanced state of a, of a condition called periportal cuffing, which is an indicator of advanced hepatitis. And I was like, there's my VD. I don't know how I got it, but apparently... I, I must have sat in the wrong subway car because I so I'm like advanced hepatitis and, he, and he's like yes this is very serious you could die from this uh, we need to do a liver biopsy so this doctor who was actually a nice guy sends me to what I could only describe as the torture dungeon from the film Jacob's Ladder and when they do a liver biopsy they can't use anesthesia because it will affect the results of the biopsy. So they essentially took a core sample of my liver while I was awake, which was the only thing that I've ever experienced that was more painful than the kidney stones that I went in there to get. So now they, the, the guy says to me, okay, we're gonna send this to the lab, it's gonna take about a month, and then we'll, we'll tell you what we're gonna do from there. That month was the worst month of my life, which is saying a lot. I know you don't know me, but that is saying a lot. Because I was 17 years old, and I'm just trying to deal with my own mortality. And I'm like, I have hepatitis? This was before Pam Anderson came out as having hepatitis, before it was cool. And, uh, 
you know, I'm like, I'm gonna die. Like, I don't know what to do. And every day I was just a complete wreck. I, I didn't eat, I slept even less than I was sleeping. So I, I go to this, this specialist, uh, this, this kidney specialist, liver specialist, and I'm in his office and I'm in a panic and he is like this, hand, he looks like Alan Thicke. Like he's like the, the world's handsomest hepatitis specialist doctor. And I'm, I'm like, this, he's gonna tell me that I have like maybe four hours uh, to live. And I'm a wreck, and he comes in, and he's all like, hey, how you doing? All right. And I'm like, just, just tell me I'm going to die, or just get a gun out, and be, just, just old yeller me. Like, that's what I was hoping he would do. And he, he sits me down, and he's just asking me how school is, and, and I'm just like, this guy is sick. Like, why isn't he just giving me the information? And then he goes, oh, you don't have hepatitis. And I said, well, how do you know that? And he goes, did you have an ultrasound? Uh, about a month ago and I said yes and he goes let, let me see that so he goes and gets the record and he looks at the ultrasound and he goes these people are stupid <laughs> and, and I don't understand I, well I don't understand and he goes the way an ultrasound works is they have to account for the person's body fat and despite daily pie intake you have pretty much zero body fat and they've turned this ultrasound up to accommodate for someone who is several hundred pounds. And so what has happened is the ultrasound went and bounced around and is completely distorted. So that's what they were seeing when they looked at this ultrasound. They should have known you didn't have hepatitis from the first blood test that day because at, at the stage that you would have had to have had hepatitis based on this ultrasound, which would have meant you probably would have been dead for like six months, uh, <laughs> this would have been all in your bloodstream. He goes, at least you didn't have a liver biopsy. And I went, no, I did have that. And he actually went, oh. <laughs> it's never happened since then. And I recommend to you to avoid that ever happening. Is a doctor's reaction, oh. <laughs> After that though, every single medical thing kind of seemed less heavy. Like I just didn't trust any medical diagnoses or I just thought this isn't that bad. And I started, weirdly found it relaxing. Like I started sleeping better. I, I started sort of taking care of myself a little more. And I haven't had a major health issue since then. So although it was a miserable, awful time, I think because the weight of it was so heavy and it was such a, a, a almost devastating false uh, diagnosis that nothing has bothered me since then. And I am trying to say is, if you want to get healthy, have a huge phantom health scare. That's the only way to really get in shape. It's better than P90X. Thank you guys so much. Pie.
Shut up, you're a- In elementary school, I remember being very curious about sex. We would go swimming in, our, in the dressing room. Two girls were talking about sex. And listening in, I hear them talking about getting booty. <laughs> I imagined it as like a boy putting his penis in a girl's butt. I just remember thinking, I don't want anything up there. So no, I'm never ever going to do that. Those were my thoughts up until middle school when I uh, went to helped my mom clean out my dad's closet and found the mother load. <laughs> I found my dad's stack of girly magazines. <laughs> and so all I could think about was going back and getting one of those magazines. So I um, snuck in my dad's closet one day. I was like flabbergasted. I read that thing from cover to cover. You say who reads the articles? I did. I read them all. <laughs> What I remember in the articles was probably the use of the word pussy. <laughs> I knew generally what that was. I didn't know all the ins and outs of my body at that time. But once I discovered the term pussy, I knew where everything went. And it made a lot more sense to me after that. Once I um, had the book, it was very difficult for me to figure out how to get them back to where I got them from. So I had to get rid of those things. Um, made some guy friends at school and brought them to them. <laughs> they loved me after that. <laughs> but I'm sure they weren't reading the articles. <laughs> So then I grew up and I had three sons and um, my oldest son, at the time he was 11 or 12, my little skater dude, <laughs> he loves to skateboard and you know just play outside and he had a lot of friends in our neighborhood, a lot of friends at school and I you know start seeing them talking and breaking off into little groups and things so it was at that time that I realized maybe it's time to give him the talk I did not want him to have the experience that I had thinking forever that it was getting booty and then having to learn from the internet what sex was I decided to ask my husband to explain sex to my son <laughs> And he says, okay, they go in the back room, they close the door, they talk for about 20, 30 minutes. He leaves the room and he's like, okay, I talked to him about it. And my son, you know, goes on his merry way. He didn't say too much to me. I mean, maybe he was embarrassed, I assumed. I just figured the job is done. I don't have to say anything, you know, let the boys handle it. So days later, my aunt calls me on the phone. Now my aunt is a bubbly kind of lady and she has a son around the same age as my son and so we're talking and she's hey how are you doing and I'm like hey I'm good and she says um have you ever given your son the talks and I was like yeah just the other day where is this coming from and she was like well 
You know, um, him and my son have been talking on the phone and my son was confused about something that they talked about. And I wanted to know if you could clear some things up. He told my son that in order to have twins, the woman had to put the man's penis in her mouth and suck it. At first, I am mortified. I'm like, oh my goodness. I don't know what my husband told him, but I'm pretty sure he told him how to do it right. <laughs> and I'm pretty sure he didn't tell him anything like that. I'll, I'll talk to him. And then the conversation just got quiet for a second. We both kind of got quiet. She says, you know what? And I said, my mom. She has twins. <laughs> and we both crack up laughing. <laughs> and without any other words, she calls my mom on three-way. Now, my mom is very secretive. She likes to keep her life to herself. She likes to be, you know, prim and proper in public, you know. So when we call her, I said, Mom. Guess what? Your grandson thinks that you've been doing. <laughs> and she says, what? <laughs> and I said, well, he thinks that the way to make twins <laughs> is that a woman sucks the man's penis. <laughs> she got quiet and she says, oh, my God, <laughs> where did he get that from? And why does he think I did that? <laughs> Me and my aunt fall out laughing she realizes that my aunt is on the phone and she is like what <laughs> both of y'all and I was like yeah my aunt's the one who told me that our two sons talked about it together <laughs> to this day that is a family joke because of course we couldn't keep that to ourselves we told everybody and so when um we have family functions and my mom pisses somebody off they'll say that's how you that's why you got twins <laughs> we've since gone back and talked to that son about this and corrected all the damage and hopefully he still doesn't have any weird ideas that other kids gave him about sex well the next son becomes of age to talk about sex now my middle son is different because he has down syndrome he is 14 years old and he is such a sweet cuddly kid i mean he loves hugs he loves his family he's just lovable all of his teachers instantly fall in love with him He's at that age where he likes girls, but girls his age in his regular ed classes don't really identify with him or, or you know, want to be his girlfriend per se. They're always just very friendly with him. And it's very difficult to give a child the sex talk in the first place, but to give it to a kid with Down syndrome and have to give that information to him is a little bit difficult you know not that he won't understand because he's very high functioning but you got to be careful exactly how much you tell him so he loves the ladies you know we'll go to a restaurant and we'll be sitting there and he has no problem telling the waitress how hot she is <laughs> he will say you are hot <laughs> He has no problems with it. My dad gets a kick out of how open he is. 
he has a system on how to get girls numbers everywhere we go if he sees a, a hot girl he will grab his phone and say hey can we take a selfie together and of course she'll be like yes you're so cute and they'll take a picture together and he'll go now can I get your number so that I can send you this picture <laughs> he is amazing he's open he loves ladies but at some point you got to tell him and of course it's a little later to have that talk with him but he's at the age where his body is developing more than you know intellectually he can handle of course you know I passed this one off to my husband too and my mom was very interested in him having the talk too I don't know if it was so much as she didn't want him to believe that she was giving blowjobs <laughs> but you know he went to go see her one day for a holiday and he came back with a book on um what's happening down there <laughs> She decided to give him the education a little bit for me so that, you know, he wouldn't have those misconceptions about her. And he read that book from cover to cover. And I had my husband go in and talk to him as well, give him the gist of sex and kind of, you know, clean up whatever he's read and, and misconstrued. My mom says, hey, uh, I don't know if you realize, but he has a, an Instagram. And I was like. No, we talked about this and I told him no social media. And um, she goes, well, he has one. And so I go online and I look at his Instagram and it is full of the biggest asses and titties you have ever seen in your life. The big bowling ball titties and big bowling ball asses. And I'm like, oh my gosh, he's going to think this is what women are. <laughs> And I delve further into his iPod and I find that he has a Skype account and my sweet little kid has a Skype and his screen name made me freeze. My baby's screen name was Hot Shot Up In Yo Pussy. <laughs> well, he has no misconceptions about where things go, apparently. <laughs> but we got some talking to do to straighten that up as well. <laughs> so I still have one more kid to go. He's getting around that age. I have learned that no matter what you say, no matter all the preparations that you make to give your kids the talk, there's always going to be that outside influence of the peers. But it is important for parents to be there and be open so that they can ask questions and come to you when they have misconceptions and just be as honest with your children as you can be. Spinderella cut it up one time. Ooh. Oh. Mm. Hey. Uh-huh. Oh. Mm-hmm. Mm. Oops. Ooh. Oh. Oops. Mm. Hey. Uh-huh. Oh. Mm-hmm. Mm. Oops. Ooh. 
<laughs> this is Risk. This is Salt and Peppa. Uh, it's a remix, of course. And before that, we heard from Markisha Bazil. It was so fun. Uh, Shannon Kaysen introduced us to Markisha. I think she's in... She's somewhere down south. I forget where exactly now, but that was so much fun chatting with her over Skype. And uh, before that, we heard a little interstitial by our episode editor, Mr. Jeff Barr. Now, our final story today is from our recent Portland show, our recent show in Portland, Oregon. Oh, my God. That was quite a hefty show. And this is about to be a pretty hefty story this one comes to us from mike carlip he did such a great job at revolution hall huge audience really interesting night that night anyway here he is now this is mike carlip with a story we call life with father So, this is a father and son story. Uh, like many young boys, my dad was my hero. He was everything to me. Uh, he was uh, larger than life, seven feet tall, could do anything. Nothing was uh, too difficult for him. But it's only when you look back and you look at pictures and stuff, I, I realize that he looks exactly like I do right now. You know, um, I'm not seven feet tall, shockingly enough. And it was amazing. I mean, he had a mustache. He didn't have a beard. He did a mustache. He rocked that mustache. And it was an epic mustache. And when he shaved it off, I remember I cried for a week. It was devastating to me. Once I hit puberty, my dad and I stopped being really close. He was a type A alpha guy, powerful corporate executive, uh, former military, and I definitely was not. And his childhood kind of reads like an origin story for a crime-fighting vigilante. Uh, he grew up an orphan, and this is all true. He grew up as an orphan in Hell's Kitchen in New York City and eventually moved up to the Bronx, right? He bounced around foster care in New York City until his early teens, where he was adopted by the Carlips. And uh, they didn't have any kids, and I guess they wanted one. But when they adopted him, they kind of just treated him like a piece of furniture. He excelled academically, and every time he excelled academically and brought home a report card, they treated it like a blight on their name. And every medal he won in athletics, he was a, a world-class swimmer, every medal he brought back was treated like a steaming turd. And the adults that kind of orbited that family were extremely sketchy. And uh, he wouldn't really talk about them, and anytime we tried to talk about them or ask my mom, uh, we just got kind of that death stare. And uh, he changed the subject immediately. But despite all that shit, he made it out. And he went into a military college and became an officer in the uh, United States Army. And that's where the stories with dad start. And there's a ton of college hijinks stories of various taping of people's body parts and all this weird stuff. One of the stories he likes to tell from the service, and, and I don't know if it's true or not, but it's completely plausible knowing my dad. Uh, he was going through POW training, and that's where they take people that you know, might get captured in what they're doing, and they put you through simulated torture. 
And really, there's no way to simulate torture. I mean, you're, you get tortured. I mean, that's what's going to happen. And so they had my dad up against this pole. And he told them, he said, hey, watch out for my knees. I need them. You know, they're my knees. They're, they're pretty wonky. And they're like, all right, whatever. And so they start wrapping his legs around this pole. And uh, he said, well, I wasn't going to put up with that shit. So, of course, he did the only logical thing he could do. He stole the guy's sidearm, his pistol, and stuck it in the guy's mouth. And he said, listen, I told you about the fucking knees. I'm going to need them later. And, and that was my dad, you know, telling a joke while he's scaring the shit out of you. As my uh, teen years ground on, uh, the schism between dad and I got, got bigger. I was a fat nerd in glasses, and I really only wanted to do three things. I wanted to play video games, jerk off, and do epic Dungeons & Dragons quests. Yeah, it's like the Holy Trinity, really. Um, and my dad was the complete opposite. He was an athlete. He did triathlons. He did marathons. Uh, he was an executive in a Fortune 100 company. He even published a newspaper on running and outdoor living, which opposite, of, of course, of, of all those activities that I do. Uh, but we always had two things in common. We had the Star Wars saga, and we had uh, David Lynch's adaptation of Frank Herbert's Dune. Right? Yeah, that's awesome. Uh, <laughs> So, um, you know, my dad would buy me so many Vaders all the time. I still have probably a dozen Vaders that he bought me kicking around my apartment right now. And every day I would get a, Mike, I am your father, <laughs> in his best Vader voice. It was amazing. Um, and with, with Dune, we just, for some reason, it really resonated with us both. And uh, we'd always bounce quotes off of the, each other from the movie. And one thing he'd always uh, quote was this, uh, line given from father to son, from Duke Leto Atreides to a young Paul Atreides. And it was, without change, something sleeps inside of us and seldom awakens. And the sleeper must awaken. And the hand is part of the movie thing. He would always do the hand, too. And it was, it was a weird juxtaposition, because in public, my dad was just the life of the party. You know, he was quick with a joke. He was the first guy on the dance floor whenever music started. And he would help anyone with anything. Uh, the shirt off his back, if it was money, it was time, whatever. But in private, uh, he was very withdrawn, uh, quick to anger, and extremely sullen. One thing I remember distinctly from my childhood was uh, my mom and my sister and I would eat dinner at the kitchen table every night. And we'd always ask my dad to come and eat with us. And uh, he would always say, no, I, I can't eat the table. It makes me tense. I'm too tense. I can't sit at the table. I can't enjoy my meal. Let me just sit in front of the TV in my chair. I want to eat my food. And I want to watch MASH. And that guy fucking loved MASH. <laughs> like to, a, to an insane degree, he loved MASH. Uh, so we did that. We just let him watch MASH. And we just went over and, and talked about our days while he was sitting in there eating his wings. Uh, it, it was very weird because he was fiercely protective of us. And he loved us a great deal. And we knew this. He would do anything for us. Uh, one time, we had a costume contest in middle school. My dad and I, when I especially when I was younger, would do a lot of like World War II history stuff because uh, I guess that's what I was into as a child. And uh, so, right, to totally normal, right? Right? Okay. And um, so, <laughs> I decided that uh, with my dad's encouragement, I should dress up as General George S. Patton for this costume contest. Yeah, old blood and guts himself, right? And so um, it was a totally logical 11-year-old costume. 
And uh, <laughs> so, well, you know, I, my dad dresses me up in his old military uniform, and we, we get all the accoutrements uh, commensurate with my new rank as general. And uh, I thought I'd just look the spitting image of, of General Patton, albeit like a short, fat, glasses-wearing kid version of George S. Patton. Uh, so I'm ready to go in there and kick ass, right? My dad's like, oh, you got him. You got him, Michael. You could do this. I'm like, yeah, Dad, I got this. I'm going in. I'm going to win. So I go into the costume contest, and I lost to a kid in a fucking sheet-slash-toga wearing his mom's sandals, being some sort of like Caesar or Socrates. I don't know. It was horrible, and I was devastated. And uh, I went home crying. And my dad just was like, oh, it's bullshit. Which, anything that didn't pass the Harry Carlip smell test was bullshit. So I was bullshit. I'm going in there, I'm going to talk to that teacher. And I was like, uh, okay, that's great, Dad. And I remember seeing him walking through the hall with that look, that laser look, that any of my family members can know that look of, like, someone is fucked right now. And he goes, marched through that hall, boom, 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 shuts the teacher's door, and I have no idea what happened between the two of them, but that teacher was extremely nice to me for the next three years. <laughs> so we had this weird juxtaposition of my dad, you know, fiercely loyal, protective, and loving, and yet kind of withdrawn, and, and most of the time seemed like he didn't want much to do with us. And I kind of feel like an asshole saying all this stuff. So my dad, as far as dads go, he was pretty great. Uh, you know, he didn't hit us or anything. He provided for us. He was, he's really a fantastic guy. But as you grow up, you realize that he is and, and was just a man who had to deal with a lot of shit. And my parents stayed together up until, like, right until my college graduation. And the two ways I knew that they were splitting up was, one, I had to pick them up separately from the airport. <laughs> and two... Um, they got separate hotel rooms. So I was, I was kind of clued in at that point. I was like, you know, I think it's not working out between mom and dad. And uh, they're splitting up. So, you know, it was totally devastating for my dad. Because you have to think about it. Here's a guy who had nothing. He had no family to speak of growing up. And he kind of just bounced from one to another and finally wound up with a terrible one. He joined the military, found a family there, but now he's out of the military. And now the first chance... With a real family, what do we do? We all go to the wind, my mom included. After that point, I really didn't see my dad much. Uh, maybe uh, once a year, if that. And we talked on the phone, but it was mostly me asking for money and him asking what it was for. Um, and it was rough. You know, I, I, just, I didn't really think about seeing him, and I just wanted to get as far away as possible. But then my dad had his stroke. And it wasn't a major stroke. Uh, in fact, his insurance called it a brain event, which kind of sounds like a black tie gala happening in your head. <laughs> but it was a stroke. Like, it was a stroke. And um, I was living in New York City at the time teaching. I had actually just gotten tenure, which in New York City teaching terms is like you're bulletproof. You can do anything. And, yeah. And um, so I quit my job. I gave up my position. And I said, I got to be down there for dad. And he, li he was living in southwest Florida, which... Uh, Eh, not, not very well. Not very well. Um, and so um, I decided to move from Brooklyn, which is pretty woo, by the way, down to Southwest Florida. Again, no woo. And so I moved down there with uh, my girlfriend at the time, and uh, we moved in with Dad. And now the, the stroke had destroyed parts of his brain. Um, like some of his vocabulary was gone, his hands were a little less dexterous, but it also seemed to destroy whatever part of his brain made him a tense asshole around me. 
once we got down there, he doted on us nonstop. You know, he opened his doors every chance he got. Hey, hey, you need anything? You need anything, Mike? You need anything? And, um, you know, it was great. It was, uh, it was definitely an adjustment, but it was great. I got a job eventually down in Florida, and uh, my girlfriend didn't. And so she spent all day with dad, and he was just on her nonstop. Just, hey, you want to go to the beach? Hey, you want to go there? Yeah, you hungry? You thirsty? You want to go there? And so she just had enough of it, and uh, she decided to leave. And she flew back to uh, L.A. where she, her family was from. And that just totally broke my heart. I was pretty devastated at that point. It turned out to be pretty awesome, actually, because I got to be with my dad and kind of get to know him again. And not just as dad, but as Harry Carlip, the man, you know. And it was great. We went out to the bar and got drunk um, a lot. And, um, <laughs> and we went out to dinners a lot, went to the beach. And he... That's when he started using this phrase. I don't know if it, it was always used it, but everything was compared to a stick in the eye. So it'd be like, we were at the beach watching the sunset. He goes, oh, look at that sunset. Sure better than a stick in the eye, huh? And, which is a pretty low standard when you think about it. Like, sticks in the eye, that's pretty shitty. You don't want that. You know, hey, uh, how's that uh, steak I cooked for you? It's better than a stick in the eye, huh? Yeah, yeah, Dad. It's definitely not a stick in my eye. Uh, so that was pretty amazing, just getting to know these little weird dadisms and these idiosyncrasies that I, I never really took the time to notice before. Eventually, my girlfriend came back, and uh, we moved out, we got engaged, we got married, and, meh, hold on. And, um, and, uh, <laughs> and so, um, <laughs> and so, um, thank you for that. Um, we, uh, we moved out, and uh, we still had dinners with Dad. And it, what was amazing was, during the six months that I lived with my father, I actually had dinner with him at the table more times than during the 18 years that I grew up with him, which kind of just blew my mind. And at these dinners with Dad and, and my girlfriend, I got to see him you know, as that young kid looking for acceptance and love. Uh, I got to see him as a former Army officer with PTSD, and I got to see him as just a really attentive and loving partner to the, the absolute score of women that came in and out of his life. And my dad had serious game uh, in that department. It was, it was pretty insane. Um, he uh, was just dating nonstop. We had the girlfriend of the week pretty much happening, um, which, you know, yeah, good on you, dad. You know, good job. Anyway, uh, so eventually he met Marilyn Spiegel on J-Date. And... Um, <laughs> Yeah, it works, I guess. I don't know. Um, and uh, they were immediately in love. We could tell. My dad had those eyes that just radiated love for her. And she went right back at him. They were completely in love. And we knew it was only a matter of time before they took that next step, whatever they chose to do with that. And um, that Thanksgiving, actually, they invited us onto this boat. Um, they're like, hey, we bought this boat. And it was this, like, 45-foot trawler um, with, like, beautiful living area and everything and, and they moved into this boat and uh they announced their engagement to us and and we couldn't be happier i mean marilyn was amazing and my dad is was fucking great so of course so they start planning for this wedding and they they made it for may and uh they're planning and and i noticed it was my dad was kind of keeping it low-key uh keeping it pretty small and i figured he just had such a huge social circle and a lot of people that liked him um, and a lot of friends that i just figured well hey you know, he doesn't want to hurt anyone's feelings by not inviting them, which is something my dad absolutely would do. Um, he just wanted to make sure that no one, no one felt stepped on. 
and it was great. Um, so I didn't think much of it. I was driving back to school um, where I was out interviewing some kiddos that I would be having for the next school year, and um, I got a call from an unknown number, and it turned out to be one of my dad's ex-girlfriends. She said, uh, Michael, what are you doing right now? And I said, well, I'm, I'm just driving back to work. And she said, well, you should pull over. I looked for a parking spot, and I, I pulled into a parking lot, and I, I kind of steeled myself for the worst because... Um, you know, my, my dad was 70. He was under a lot of stress from the, from the marriage uh, thing happening. And, um, you know, he had a stroke like five years ago. So the odds of him having another stroke were pretty good. So I, I said, hey, you know, what's, what's going on? She said, well, have you watched the news today? And uh, this is what I came to find out happened. So it's uh, the early morning of Thursday, May 15th, 2014. And uh, my dad's up early, as always, and he's making coffee for Marilyn, uh, who is sleeping in as usual in the galley of their kitchen. Michael Spiegel, her ex-husband, uh, boards the boat. He's wearing a rain slicker and is carrying a briefcase. Uh, he spent the last two weeks uh, tracking them down, gathering supplies, actually learning how to make and assembling a homemade silencer that, with plants he found on the internet. He walks down the stairs. I would imagine my dad sees him. And my dad would start going this way because that's where uh, he kept his weapons. Michael Spiegel pulls out his gun and fires. There were bullet holes in the cabin. My dad is hit five times. Uh, one of the bullets severs his iliac artery and he falls to the stairs. He's bleeding out and he can't move. Marilyn wakes up from the noise and comes up from the sleeping area and makes it to the galley and sees her ex-husband and yells, what have you done? Get out of here. He puts his case down. She calls 911, but for some reason drops the phone. The call remains active throughout. He opens the case. And inside the case is duct tape, zip ties, sexual instruments, lube, Viagra, and a knife. He pulls out the knife and backs her into the galley. He stabs her, stabbing her 15 times. She has defensive wounds on her hands from trying to protect herself. Michael Spiegel then, satisfied, blood covering his yellow rain slicker, closes his case and turns the gas on on all four burners in the galley and then lights a torch hoping to cause an explosion or a fire. He exits the boat, walks down the dock and is apprehended by the police not 100 yards uh, from the boat, caught literally red-handed. Michael Spiegel would actually plead not guilty to the crimes uh, citing that he was receiving testosterone replacement therapy, and that caused him to commit a double homicide and arson. Now, I sat 15 feet from this guy uh, for hearing after hearing, you know, 15 feet from this old, frail, sad man who did what Hell's Kitchen, triathlons, combat, marathons, and a stroke could not do, and that's kill my father. 
Now, my sister was flying down the next day for the wedding, and she would have been staying on that boat if he had chosen to come the next day. My sister would have been on that boat for the murders. And my sister is one of the most amazing, generous, and loving people I know and probably will ever know my entire life. But instead, when I called her, she was in her office at work. And uh, I remember calling and just saying, Marcy, what are, you, what are you doing? She's like, I'm in my office. I said, close your door. She asked what was wrong. I said, Dad and Marilyn are dead. She said, what? And I said, her husband, her ex-husband came on the boat and killed them both. And I just remember her yelling no over and over again. Just no, no. And I think she dropped the phone. Luckily, her husband, James, who's equally amazing, came and got her from work and took her home. But she could have been on that boat when Michael Spiegel did the crimes, when my dad was murdered. At that moment, everything was starting to unravel for me. Everything was falling apart. My life that I'd woven so carefully was just completely turning into threads. I remember the news was calling me probably within an hour or two after the crimes happened, nonstop, call after call after call. And they actually came to my front door banging on it, going, Michael, Michael, don't you want to tell your story, Michael? And I remember seeing the light coming through the peephole from the camera. But I wasn't going to give them shit. No. I wasn't going to do that door jam confessional, calling for blood, crying, wailing. I wasn't going to give them that. Mm -mm. I didn't cry then. And, And I didn't cry when I had to go to the murder scene less than 24 hours after the crimes. Uh, The police were releasing it back to me, and and someone had to sign for it, and I had to go. Now, I I was going to drive the 45 minutes myself, but I just couldn't do it. And so I uh, had my friend Ryan. uh, He drove me. And uh, I don't remember much about that drive, and I don't remember much about that whole time, really. It was like watching something through a hallway full of murky water. It was just a mess. But... He told me during the drive, I would just sit there in silence and just say something three times as if in mid-conversation and then stop. So I, it would be just, where am I? Where am I? Where am I? I can't. I can't. I can't. And I just did that over and over again. I remember walking down the dock towards the boat, and I could see the killer's bloody handprints on the outside where he steadied himself after the crime. And I I saw the detective come out of the cabin. He actually used the stairs where my dad died. And he shut the door, and he looked down at the other detective, and he said, don't let him in there. Don't let him in there. It's not ready. He shouldn't see that. Don't let him in there. So instead of planning a wedding, I had to find someone to clean up my dad and Marilyn's blood. And instead of cruising the Caribbean on their boat, Harry and Marilyn were in the morgue. Now at that time, I had been going through marriage counseling for about six months. It wasn't going great, but things were edging in the right direction. But once the crimes happened, once my dad was murdered, it was like pneumonia to someone fighting late-stage cancer. It just blew it right apart. Part of me just didn't give a shit anymore. It didn't matter. I mean, Dad and Marilyn were doing it right. They were in love. They were building life on their own terms. And 
I mean, what the fuck was the point of trying to make a failing marriage work at this point? So we separated in uh, November and uh, finally divorced in April. And we actually wound up living together for eight months after we separated just due to leases and things like that. But I was so numb. I didn't know what the fuck was going on. I didn't know it was a messed up situation. I was just trying to get through day after day of feeling like everybody was looking at me, feeling the profound loss of my father and not knowing what to do with it. So eventually, uh, my wife packed up her stuff and I started packing up my stuff. And I decided to move here, to Oregon. And I'd never been here before. But I knew two things. One, it was pretty much as opposite of Florida as you can fucking get. (laughs) Yeah, see, now you can move. And two, it was as far away from that fucking boat as I could get as well. I also thought of my dad at that point and how the sleeper must awaken. And if he could reconstruct his life after he lost his family, after all this stuff, and he could still live life on his terms, why couldn't I? So I shipped out my boxes, and I got ready to move out here. My ex-wife left our apartment about two days before I did. And the apartment was empty. My job was gone. My wife was gone. My dad was gone. Everything was gone. We hugged, and, and she started walking towards the door, this last relic of a life that was completely blown apart. And when that door closed, that's when I cried, alone. Thanks. I thought the world was crazy Everyone was sad and chasing Happiness and love And I was the only one above it I thought without a doubt I had it all figured out A universe with hands unseen I was cold as gasoline It took too long to see I was wrong That is all for this week's episode, folks. This gorgeous song is by Wilco. And now I will read the many places we are appearing live next. On May 20th, this Friday, we are in Brooklyn at the Bell House for our big show, kind of honoring the release of the new book, 
The Union of the State. It's the biography of my old sketch comedy group. Janine Garofalo will be their self Herzog, Eugene Merman, Caroline Ray. Uh, there will be videos of various state members checking in. It's going to be a great night. On May 21st, we are in Minneapolis, Minnesota at Brave New Workshop. Don't miss that, folks. Our Minneapolis shows have been phenomenal. This one's going to be no different. On May 21st, we are also in Los Angeles at the Nerdist showroom. That'll be our last show at the Nerdist. On June 17th, we are in Philadelphia, and we're still taking pitches for that show, folks. The theme that night is disgusted. Uh, so pitch us your stories, folks who live in Philly. It's pitches at risk-show.com, and you can find out more at the submissions page at risk-show.com. On June 18th, we're back in L.A., but this time at the Bootleg Theater. That's our new home in L.A. on June 18th, the Bootleg. On June 22nd, we're back at the Bell House. That show will be a special all-funny show. All the stories will be deliberately funny, and we're taping it with CISO, the comedy network. On June 25th, we're in St. Louis, Missouri. St. Louis, Missouri. The theme that night is Worried. We're still taking pitches for that, St. Louis. On July 8th, we're in San Francisco. The theme that night is Resonant. Taking pitches for that, San Francisco. Folks, do not forget about that remarkable course we have coming up with one month. If you go to onemonth.com slash risk, you can enter to win free enrollment. This storytelling for business course I'm teaching is just one of the best courses I've ever taught. It's so packed with information. Just such an exciting way to learn. Go to onemonth.com slash risk to learn about our storytelling for business course that's happening online over the course of an entire month. You can participate, get feedback from me, get feedback from other students, watch a live workshop happening, all sorts of stuff to download. It's amazing, an amazing opportunity. As I always say, please comment on the shows. Comment in the iTunes comments section, the comments section of our website, on Facebook and Twitter. Talk about us. Tell people about us. And if you want to help us out, because we dearly need it, please go to the Support Us page at risk-show.com. Folks, today's the day. Take a risk. Too long to see I was wrong to believe in me only Oh, oh shit Who threw that pie?